Or chapter 12, uh, verse 10 through 20. Uh, we're dealing with, as you can see at the title of your booklet, the life of faith. Before we were seeing uh, the life of grace, how God's grace had saved uh, Abram and had led him up to this point, had made these promises uh, to him. Uh, we're going to see a, re- a repeating of the promises over in chapter 13 at the end. We won't see that tonight, of course. Uh, but now tonight we're going to see, uh, and we'd already addressed the past few weeks, how Abram's life uh, is going to be such a picture of what it means to live by faith, what it means to live the Christian life for us. He, so many parallels of the Christian life with the life of Abram, uh, as well as he is a, a picture of, of what our life is, is to look like. Now certainly what we're going to find even tonight, and this is going to be important for us tonight, dear believer, is that we are going to be reminded that though Abram is a man of faith, though Abram is a saved man, though Abram is a man that God has made promises to, it does not keep Abram from sin. We're going to be reminded tonight that each one of us still yet have a battle uh, with sin, with the flesh, and that we must put uh, our flesh to death. We must be constantly dependent upon the Lord uh, and must constantly learn what it means to live by faith and not of the flesh. Uh, And in doing this, I hope tonight we'll be encouraged and that as well we'll be challenged. So read with me here, uh, Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon, First thing, husbands, that's a great thing to say. The next thing Abram says, husbands, don't say this, all right? (laughs) Here's what he goes on. Uh, Verse number 12, he says, Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say this, this is his wife, and they will uh, kill me, but they will say uh, that they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. And it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman, that she was very fair, the princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abram well uh, for her sake. And he had sheep and oxen and he asses and the men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this thou hast done unto me? And why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidst thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore, behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. As we get into this, we see first of all in Abram's sin, this is sort of the, the very beginnings of showing us that, that Abram, though we have seen all sorts of faith from Abram at this point, now we are beginning to see he is like you and I, of like passions like you and I, that he still battles the flesh, he still battles sin, he still battles the constant need uh, to depend upon the Lord or to depend upon oneself or to depend upon another. Uh, now here in verse number 10, the first thing that we see is this famine that shows up. In verse number 10, there was a famine in the land. Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. Uh, Sorensen writes, the remainder of the chapter, though undoubtedly historically accurate, also is allegorical of the Christian life. The Christian life is never easy, and so it was even after God had made his covenant and promises to Abraham and blessing him that he allowed adversity to, to confront him. A bed, uh, a bad famine developed in the land as a keeper of livestock. It was a difficult time. Now remember, as we see noted later on in this passage that we just read, uh, Abram has a whole lot 
of livestock that is traveling along with him. Uh, as we see this also back in chapter 12, verse number 5, Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth in the land of Canaan, and in the land of Canaan they came. And so when they're traveling, it's not just uh, the wife, the kids, and Lot in a minivan traveling down the road. Uh, they've got a caravan, if you will, uh, of belongings, of sheep, uh, of literally herds. And so they're having to take their time as they travel. And if you know anything about animals, they're a lot like people. They need food, they need water, they need shelter. Now, uh, here's the issue. Uh, Aram, as he is traveling, when you come to a place like this, he had come to the place where God had promised uh, the land, the seed, the blessing, and all of these things, uh, which, of course, will come later on with the confirming of the covenant in Genesis 15, which we'll deal with at another time. But in this, we see that in verse number 10, that the very fact that Abram has faith and has called upon the name of the Lord back in verse number 8, this does not mean now that he's called upon the name of the Lord that all of his problems will be solved or, or that life is now going to be a life of ease. How many of you got saved and immediately started having problems? Yeah, right? If you really think about it, why? Because the moment that you trust the Lord, the moment that you call upon the name of the Lord, what happens? Well, the devil goes, well, I can't have a soul, but I'm going to try to steal everything else that he can possibly have. I'm going to try to make sure that he is the most miserable of creatures. I'm going to try to make sure that he starts depending upon himself and not depending upon the Lord, because ultimately that's living a life of the flesh and not of faith. And now we find that immediately the Lord allows this temptation to come into his life, uh, ultimately to test his faith, to show his uh, to show uh, God's power and His might uh, and His providential hand uh, over Abram's life, and, and that, that God Himself, what He has promised, He will bring to pass regardless of what comes to pass by man's uh, decisions, which we'll do with that later on. But we see as well that this is to show Abram that whether a famine comes or whether everything goes right and there's plenty of grass, there's plenty of water, there's pl plenty of land, there's a, a, a time of, of plenty, that regardless of whatever state he is in, he must depend upon the Lord alone. Here we find the, the Christian life in the matter of just a couple of verses. In verse number 8, he removed from thence into a mountain on the east of Bethel, uh, of Bethel and, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hare on the east, and there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now when we had dealt with that last week, we were excited. We were talking about the worship that Abram has here, and if we remember, what does the word Bethel mean? It means the house of God. So we go from the, the highs on Bethel, or the highs in Bethel, the highs of being in the house of God, being in the presence of God, praising God, worshiping God, making sacrifice to God, atonement for sin, uh, a, a trust, a dependence upon Him, His promise, His presence, His provision, all of these blessings that are found there at Bethel. Then we find the lows of the Christian life. And it doesn't take long to go from the highs to the lows. As a matter of fact, it seems like it takes a lot longer to get to the highs of the Christian life than it does to get to the lows. It seems as if uh, getting to the highs of the Christian life, we start out here in a valley, and we have to work our way up like this. You ever rode a roller coaster, right? You go ride your roller coaster, what happens? It takes you a little bit to get up that first hill, and then what happens? Now you're going, and now you're doing. But all throughout that ride of, of that roller coaster, what happens? You've got highs, you've got lows, you've got twists, turns, upside down, and holding on for dear life and screaming at the top of your lungs. That is the Christian life at times, is it not? And so here we find immediately from the highs of Bethel, the house of God, the place where God has met with him and he has met with God, to the lows of the Christian experience, to the lows of the life of faith, where now we get in the flesh and now we are in a place of Egypt. Egypt, of course, later on is going to be seen as a picture of the world. It's going to be seen as a picture of paganism, uh, that of sinfulness, that of a, a distrust and, and a removal of God's word. 
Now, here's what we understand is that a life of faith does not keep us from times of famine. However, when famine comes to tempt the flesh, faith must arise to trust in the Lord's word, work, and will in our lives. Unfortunately, one of the great heresies of the day is that the moment you trust Jesus or if you follow Jesus, that all things in your life are going to come to pass. Whatever your wildest dreams are, that's what's going to come. You will get health, wealth, and prosperity. But yet the Bible tells us something and paints quite the different picture. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and come after me, right? You're going to have to die to yourself. It tells us that all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. We see that Paul, who is the uh, who is uh, th- this grand Christian that, that is used by God in such a way uh, it, that he goes through immense persecutions and sufferings to nearly an infinite degree, and yet we find that ultimately the answer for his suffering is that God's grace is sufficient for every need, for every moment of suffering, God has the remedy, and it is His own grace. And so we find that just because we are saved does not mean that we're not going to face famine. does not mean we're not going to face drought or difficulty or adversity. We find all throughout the Bible and and throughout the Old Testament and throughout the book of Genesis, we're going to see countless people, especially through Abram's line, that are going to face such challenges. This is not the first famine. This is not the last famine. This is not the first time of difficulty that Abram is going to face, nor will it be the last, nor will it be the, the only one that his family will face. Uh, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down, they're going to face countless issues uh, in times of trouble. Well, what we find is that faith does not fear the famine. It trusts in God's faithfulness. Now, let's ask a simple question tonight. Here we see in verse number 10, there's a famine in the land. What land? The land. Uh, Everywhere at this point, seemingly. And, And so it appears, especially in the land that it's referring to, the land of promise, the land where uh, he was currently at. Uh, it says there in verse 9, he starts journeying, going still toward the south. So he is sort of on this survey trip of the land that God is giving to him. Uh, later on, we're going to see that wherever he looks, that's where the land is going to, to be. It's going to belong to him. Uh, that'll be in chapter 13. But as we move forward in this, we see that as he journeys, a famine shows up. Now, if you've got livestock and there's a famine, you're going to start to worry pretty quickly, aren't you? Right? Think of it this way. Uh, even in our own context here in Carroll County, we've been without good rain for how long? I mean, probably a good month or more, right? We're in, we're in drought sort of conditions. There's fires. There's a danger of such, right? Uh, now, uh, imagine if you did not have an ability to go outside, turn on a faucet or turn on a garden hose and water your animals, water your plants or what have you, right? Now, I know that gardening season is, is about over, but nevertheless, you get the idea, We have such readily uh, available access to these things, but here uh, they're having to go, they're having to dig wells, they're having to depend upon rain, they're having to depend upon rivers. Now, when there's a famine, things are uh, not growing, so, well, rain's not coming, uh, food's not growing, and so now if you don't have water, you die, if you don't have food, you die, and if your animals don't have water and your animals don't have food, guess what happens to them? They die too. But on top, in all of this, as well is that for them in their day, if you lose your animals, what else do you lose? You don't just lose a herd, you lose your well-being. You, you lose your, your, your way of life, you lose your, your money, your, your funds, you lose everything. Your life was centered around your work, and for him, his work was being a herdsman. And so in all of this, there's quite the danger. There's certainly a lot of fear that now begins to well up in the flesh. Have you ever had those times where uh, it seems as if every bill imaginable, even the ones that you didn't even know could exist, they show up all at one time, and you're going, well, how in the world is this going to work out? 
Uh, and we find that then not only does that happen, but then as you pull out of your driveway, your, your tire goes flat and a check engine light comes on. And when you get out to check on the tire and to pop the hood, you spill your coffee, everything becomes a right? Life happens, and here we find that famine happens, life happens. But here we need to ask ourselves in this. Famine comes, how would we respond? You and I would like to say that we were spiritual enough to simply put our foot down, stay at Bethel, and trust the Lord and go, you know what, God will take care of us. We're just going to sit tight. He'll bring the rain. However, what happens to us when famine comes? Now, most of us have not even experienced such a famine like they're describing here where it says it was a grievous famine in the land where it's covering all over the place. But if you and I begin to face just a little bit of, of tension in our life or a little bit of adversity in our life or enough to, to stretch us a little bit, we are very quick to try to find a solution in our flesh we are very slow to want to be still and to trust God. We are very fast to try to problem solve and figure out solutions. Well, how can I move money around? How can I beg, borrow, steal? How can I get all these things? How can I put this off and bring this? We will find a way. And what happens is very often we do not even put God in the mix uh, or, in, or in the middle of our, our issues. Uh, we don't tend to trust Him. We don't tend to run to Him. We simply are looking for God to make all of the problems go away. Rather, we must, instead of looking for God to uh, get rid of all the problems, we must trust God through the problems and for Him to be the solution. Not merely for Him to provide a solution, but to trust that God Himself is the solution. As we learn to depend and trust in Him, we find that His promises will come true. We find that His Word will remain. We find that His work will still yet be done in our life. Stalehammer writes, Verse 10 opens a new episode with a notice that a famine forces Abram to take refuge in Egypt, almost as though to justify his incongruous journey to Egypt. This verse emphasizes the famine was severe. The narrative continues to chapter 13, verse 4, where we are returned to the original point of departure in the narrative, that is, Abram's worshiping of God at the altar he had built between Bethel and Ai. Ultimately, this episode that we're going to look at tonight of the sin and the failures of Abram there in Egypt is that ultimately it's going to be for his own good. It is for our good that we learn through failures. Now, I'm not giving us the justification to go out and sin and make a mess of our lives. That's not the case at all. But rather, I want you to know that every time that you make a mess of your life, the Lord is able to clean it up and make it something that is wonderful. The Lord is able to take what the devil and, and even our own flesh mean for evil and to use it for our good. And what this will ultimately do is it's going to bring Abram back to the place of worship, back to the altar, back to the place where he called upon the name of the Lord, back to a place where then in chapter 13 is going to be presented with another test, and that one he will pass with flying colors and then some of trusting God, depending upon God to provide all that he said he would provide. Now, famine is brought to test and, and to strengthen faith, and we must understand this as well in the Christian life, that the Lord allows times of uh, drought and famine in our life ultimately for our good to to stretch us to teach us and ultimately not merely to teach us to try to strive real hard but r rather the christian life must not be lived by striving but by surrendering the the issue of most of us and myself included in this is that when difficult times come in the christian life what we try to do is we try to lift up ourselves by our own strength by our own bootstraps and we try to march on as good little soldiers by our own strength, by our own power, and then we find that we're tired, we're frustrated, we're agitated, uh, we're not trusting, we're not putting God at the forefront, He's not in the preeminence of our life, nor are we trusting Him for direction. We're just simply moving on, right? We're just a little engine that could, right? But 
here we must understand that the Christian life needs less striving and needs more surrendering. The more we strive, the more we become frustrated and distrusting of the Lord, and the more we begin to lean upon our own understanding. Does the Bible say anything about leaning on your own understanding? I think it says, don't do it. Right now it's a paraphrase, but it says, don't. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him. Trust Him. Believe God at His Word. Believe His character, His attributes, His actions, His promises. Believe, simply believe that God is there in the middle of the famine, in the middle of the difficulty, in the middle of adversity, and that He is able to use it for good. Now as we get into 11 through 20 here, the rest of this section in the ending of chapter 12, we're going to see the failure of Abram. Now, here's what we must do, right? As we come to a place where one of God's people who is a strong believer, old Father Abraham here, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of dangers. One, there's a danger to so much look at Abram and go, I cannot believe you liar, right? There is this temptation for us to look at Abram and go, I can't believe he did that. There is this temptation for us to take this sort of moral high road as if we are not like Abram. As if we've never lied before. As if we've never failed God before. As if we've never literally left Bethel, the house of God, and gone straight back to Egypt. Right? I mean, it don't take long for most of us, myself included, if you don't believe me, ask my wife. She'll tell you. Oh, I hope she don't tell you. But it don't take long for me to go from the pulpit to Egypt. It doesn't take long for me, your pastor, to go from the place of uh, the house of God and worshiping the Lord to in the parking lot and I'm a miserable wretch. I'm hating life, right? Y'all thought I was real spiritual on a Sunday afternoon? No. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. Uh, Immediately there's an attack of of trying to get me to depend on myself and to try to justify all sorts of things. My my mind's going a million miles an hour. All sorts of things, right? You ask anybody that's ever preached before, you ask anybody that's ever lived with a preacher before, they will tell you all about it, right? Every one of us, it does not take us long to go from a place where we are with the Lord and things are good and then to the next thing in our life, we're letting lies come out of our mouth like it's nothing. Just five minutes ago, we were praising the Lord with those same lips and now here we are. We're gossiping, we're lying, we're cheating, we're stealing and everything else. Why? Because the flesh is still there. Abram here, the first danger is for us to condemn him to such a degree where we go, I can't believe that scoundrel. But the other other temptation for us is this, not only to make ourselves feel more spiritual and Abram somehow less spiritual, but the other temptation is to pretend as if he did not sin here. The other temptation is to pretend, well, because he's Abram, well, he's a perfect man. Well, he's not. There is only one perfect man that ever existed. Now, he's going to come through the lineage of Abram, but his name is not Abram. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. He is the promised one. He is the promised seed. He is the perfect spotless Lamb of God. There is only one perfect man. And so we must be careful of these two temptations as we look here at this passage. Now you can notice here that the progression of things, and it came to pass uh, when he was come near uh, to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarah his wife, Behold, now I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. He starts to give instructions. He starts to have a conversation um, for some reason, just the way my mind works, y'all bear with me. Y'all know me at this point. They're entering in. They're getting closer to Egypt. And it's like they're starting to see the road signs 10 miles to Egypt. Okay, all right, we're still driving, right? Five miles to Egypt. Honey, we got to talk, right? You're a very pretty woman, right? You know, thank you, sweetie. That's very sweet, right? 
Sarai, you know, you're, you're beautiful, but, but I'm kind of concerned we're just a few miles away from Egypt and, and they're going to think you're so pretty that they're going to want to make you theirs and, and, and they could kill me or might kill me to take you and have you. So, so honey, just this once, just this once, I just want you to say that, that you're my sister, okay, and, and so that my life will be spared, right? And I'll be saved because of you. And man, you're beautiful. You're so kind. You're the best wife. It's great. Y'all ever had those conversations before, right? <laughs> no, not quite, right? Doug's never driven to Egypt, I guess, before, right? Now, here, here's what happens. As he's getting close, so they have this conversation, as one commentator writes, whilst the famine in Canaan was to teach Abram that even in the promised land, food and clothing came from the Lord and his blessing, he was discover in, to discover in Egypt that earthly craft is soon put to shame when dealing with the possessor of the power of this world, and that help and deliverance are to be found with the Lord alone, who can so smite the mightiest kings that they cannot touch his chosen or do to them harm. Here's what happens. As they're getting close to Egypt, Abram already starts to walk in the flesh. Abram already starts to trust his own cunningness and his own wisdom. He goes, all right, you know what? My wife is beautiful. The Egyptians, they're a pagan people, but they've got the food. They've got what we need. So we'll go down there. We'll get what we need. Uh, spend the time till the famine's over. We'll go back. Things will be okay. But the issue is they might kill me for my wife. And so here's what I'll do. I'll get her to lie. I'll lie. We'll get what we need, get out of Dodge, and things will be just fine. Sounds like a good plan, right? Uh, now, you know, here's the thing. He, he uh, is, is devising this up. All the while, nowhere do we find from verse 9 through 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, all the way down through the line, a time where Abram goes, Lord, would you like me to go to Egypt? We don't find a time where he goes, Lord, would you like me to lie? What do you think God's answer to that would be, right? As we see this, Abram seeks help here from a pagan king, Pharaoh. A man who is not only an unbeliever, but a man who would claim to be God and is worshipped as a God in his own, own land. Uh, a people that are absolutely pagan and idolatrous to their very core. It is their nature. It is their culture. He trusts in his provision instead of the God who has just promised him land, seed, and blessing. Now what is so interesting is just the first nine verses of this chapter, we see God give all these promises and Abram say, that sounds wonderful. Let's move. Let's get to Canaan. We get to Canaan. Let's call upon the name of the Lord. Now let's worship the Lord. Let's set up an altar. Things are going good. And then the next minute, wait, what did God promise? Well, see, there's a famine. So now the, the potential for these promises of God to come true, well, now they're in danger because of the famine. There is no famine that could cause danger to God's plan. There is no drought that could cause a, 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 a little bump or a hiccup in God's plan. As a matter of fact, when we understand God's providential plan of all time and eternity, and especially that of redemptive history, everything involved in it, everything that comes to pass, the Lord already knows and has planned ahead of time for every scenario whatsoever. So when you sin, it does not make Him hiccup or go, Oh, what are they doing? He knows exactly long before you ever did it, and still yet, it is accounted for in his plan. Why? Because he knows you. He knows me. He knows Abram. And he knows our hearts and that we are but dust. He's already told us this earlier in Genesis, that we're just flesh. We're just dust. We don't hardly know what we're doing, let alone are we able to make big decisions like should we go to Egypt or not. 
and all this, we see that God is going to use this episode to show him that not only should he not trust in a pagan king, but that he should trust in him alone, that if God promised all these things, that God's word will bring about God's work, that he will fulfill what he has told Abram, and he does not need to go trust anyone else or anything else except for what God has spoken, and that God can take care of him in the midst of a famine without having to travel to a pagan land for a pagan king to give him this sustenance. Find out as well that Abram along this way is going to learn that lying is not always the answer, and that our own mind and logic, though sound as it might be, Our plans are not God's plans, and our plans had better match God's plans. As a matter of fact, you and I, we're not told to not make plans in the sense of to not think through things or to try uh, to do things in an orderly way, but rather we're told to order uh, ourselves and our lives around God's will. And so in order to get to that place, we need to cease the striving, begin the surrendering, and in so doing, what we will find is that our will becomes and is surrendered to God's will. So God's will uh, for our life becomes our will in the sense that we're now trusting His will. That our will wants His will more than it wants our own. That is what a life of surrender and faith looks like. Abram begins to reason the flesh instead of faith. He leaves the place that God has given him and would still yet be able to provide for him and fulfill his promises. We see this time and time and time and time and time again all throughout as we trace the redemptive story Uh, As we look at every believer, every group of people that believe and trust the Lord, we find that they fail at times in this of simply trusting God to provide for their daily needs. Now, if we believe that God can make a promise of land, seed, and blessing, do you think he could take care of Abram during this time of famine? Of course. How about this for you and I? How many believe that when the Lord said, if you repent, believe the gospel, I will save you and give you an abundant life, give you the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. and all these If you believe that, you go, all right, yeah, that's wonderful, I believe that. Well, if you believe that God has saved you throughout all of eternity and from everlasting destruction, then why would we not believe that God can take care of our daily, moment-by-moment needs? Physical, spiritual, emotional needs. Then we find that he goes into a place that would offer physical comforts looking at the temporal and not the eternal. Here for a moment in Abram's life, he gets his eyes off of the eternal city of which he was waiting for, and here he realizes the desperation, his animals, his servants, all these people. Imagine this. All these folks are under Abram's care, but Abram forgets that they're not really under his care, they're under God's care. God has made a promise to Abram, therefore those folks that are associated with Abram, his servants, his livestock, God is not going uh, to simply just let them all die off because uh, of some famine. God is going to provide for them because of the faith of Abram in this situation. But then we find as well that he moves without being moved of God. Abram's flesh reacts to the famine, but faith responds to the faithfulness of God. Here I believe one of the greatest issues of the average Christian today. We are so full of activity but we have so little an awareness of who God is, what God desires, what God is able to do, what God desires to do in us, through us, for us. We are very little aware of God's indwelling presence. We are very little aware of His power and might uh, that He empowers us with, the grace that is sufficient for every need. We are always aware of our fleshly needs. We are always aware of the the things around us that seem to be falling apart, but we seem to be very little aware 
of God. Now for the Christian by faith, we must understand that we love activity and God does not say that activity is wrong, but when God has not moved you, do not move. We must learn the Christian art once more, the biblical art of learning to be still. We must remember that being still is still yet a verb, it is still active. You have to actively be still. You have to actively wait upon the Lord. And notice, those that wait upon the Lord, their strength is renewed. We find that they find all that they need is God, and God is all that they need. And in this, we must learn that simply because we are moving does not mean we're moving in the right direction. We can have plenty of activity and accomplish nothing. I can run for an hour and a half. Well, probably not. But I could run for a long time in place, and you know how far I'm going to get? Not very far. And so it doesn't make sense. You ever seen someone in a marathon? They actually run. They'll run in place to warm up before they go to the starting line. But notice, if they just stay running in place, they'll never move past the starting line. And most Christians today have yet to move past the starting line because they're simply running in place by their own strength, by their own power, and they wonder why they're exhausted, they're falling behind, they're lagging behind, they feel no real joy, they feel no real peace or contentment in the Christian life. Perhaps, dear Christian, it's because we are trying to do the impossible. We are trying to live the Christian life in our flesh, in our own strength. It is absolutely impossible. It is by grace through faith, it is by yielding to the Spirit of God that makes uh, the impossible possible. It is the, uh, the life of Christ now lived through us, and now this is only seen appropriated by faith. And so we find that we must learn, like Abram had to learn. He had to learn through failure, and you and I must learn through our own failures that we must not move until God moves us. Perhaps what we need today is not really just a move of God amongst us, but we need to be moved by God. We need to be moved by who He is. Moved by what He's done in our life. Moved by His Word once more. It is a very frightening thing. Not just as a preacher, but, but as we look at the Christianity as a whole, when believers today remain unmoved by the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. If we believe this book to be what it says it is, if we believe this book to be God's revealed, inspired, infallible, and errant, sufficient Word of God that is able to teach us the way of salvation and the way in which to live to please the Lord, the way of faith. If we believe it is those things and we hear God's Word and we remain unmoved by it, there is a much deeper issue. Abram's flesh led him to fear that he would either lose everything, including the fulfillment of God's promises because of the famine with a Pharaoh taking his wife and wealth. Notice they get there. He says, I pray thee, say thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. What a responsibility he gives to her. And he says, it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. He entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen, and, and he asses and men servants and maid servants, and she asses and camels. Here we see that Abram is a man like you and I. He has a fear of the famine. A fear that in this famine he would be unable to provide for his people and for all those that are counting on him. A fear of failure. Being unable to prosper. As a man, and you ask probably any man out there today, two of the biggest fears that they have in their life is not being able to provide for their family and not being able to prosper at what they do. 
Now, it's pride that certainly wants both, and it's pride that certainly keeps us from achieving much of what we could achieve. But yet we find that Abram here struggles like you and I. This gives me hope. It gives me encouragement that God is still yet able to use this man. He's able to use me as well. If God still desires to use this man and still fulfill his promises to this man, he still feels the same that way towards myself as well. Now, in fear, Abram has his wife and himself lie about the relationship, believing that it would protect him and his wealth, his well-being. Guzik writes, this was in fact a half-truth. Sarah was Abram's half-sister, Genesis 20, verse 12 is what it appears to be. Yet this half-truth was a whole lie. Abram's intent here was clearly to deceive, and he trusted in his deception to protect him instead of trusting in the Lord. It is much greater to trust in the Lord and the truth of God and His Word than it is to trust in our own cunningness, our own logic, our own deception to get our way. Ultimately, we must understand that being deceiving is devilish in its nature. What is the devil called? The father of lies. That's right. What is to be deceptive? What is to be deceiving? It's to lie. There's no way around it. A half-truth is a whole lie. And so we have to understand here that we are much more devilish when we are lying with our forked tongue than we are when we simply trust God, live by faith. That is when we learn to be Christ-like. That is when we learn to live as we ought to, to please the Lord. Abram receives riches from Pharaoh, but he is supposed to be blessed by the hand of God, by grace through faith, not through fleshly means. So let me tell you this as well. I've had to learn this in my own life. Just because you have an abundance does not mean it came from the Lord. A man can work himself to death. A man can deceive his way to the top to where he seemingly is blessed beyond all means. But all the blessing that Abram has here in Egypt is nothing compared to what God had already promised him. Let me ask you, is having food and water and, and even perhaps even more gifts of livestock given to you, is that worth as much as what God had said in chapter 12, verse 1 through 3? Go to a land I will show you. I will make thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And now the same one who had received those promises is going, all right, struck it rich, struck it big, having a big old time here in Egypt. Look at all this wealth I've accumulated. Things are going good. We're comforted. Our people are taken care of. Everything is well. And yet, it was nothing compared to the blessing that is found there at Bethel. Yet it is not compared to the blessing that it is to simply walk with the Lord and to know His presence. Abram's deception backfires as his wife is taken away to become part of Pharaoh's harem. As JFB commentators write, Eastern kings have for ages claimed the privilege of taking to their harem an unmarried woman whom they like. The father or brother may deplore the removal of as, as a calamity, but the royal right is never resisted nor questioned. And here, this takes place. Now, there are some who imply that there was adultery here, but we do not have nearly enough evidence to go through such, nor do I believe that we should attribute such sin to Sarai, uh, to character or anything like that whatsoever. Because later on we see, uh, he says uh, in verse 19, Pharaoh speaking, he says, Why said thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. That shows me that there was no consummation of a marriage. There was no actual physical touching that took place between Pharaoh and Sarai. But we simply find that what God does here is that God prevents this from going any further. 
God restrains both parties. And in so doing, what he does is he plagues Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. And you thought, well, wait a minute. Pharaoh didn't do the sin in this. At least from our perspective. We go, well, Abram is the one that lied and now Pharaoh's getting the punishment for it. I want you to know, Pharaoh has already sinned a great deal. Why? Because he is full of idolatry, he is full of paganism, and he leads a nation of paganism. We find that in this, God does this to show Pharaoh who is truly the king, who is truly God, and that ultimately, God's hand is upon this man and His hand will not be removed. He will bless this man. He will protect the lineage and the line because it will be through this man that the promised seed, the Savior of the world, will come. God prevents any further calamity and brings condemnation through the pagan king against Abram for his deception and caused uh, from unbelief. Pharaoh ultimately is shown here to really have no power. In verse 17 through 20, we see that God's faithfulness and the failures of his people, God still remains faithful even when we remain unfaithful. Even when you and I struggle with faith, God is still yet faithful. There's a reason why we sing such old classic hymns, Great is thy faithfulness. Why? Because it is his faithfulness that is great. It is not, Great is my faithfulness, right? We don't sing that verse tagged on. It is great as his faithfulness. Why? Because if our life was dependent upon our faithfulness, we would be in a mess every single day. But because of the faithfulness of God, we are sustained, we are strengthened, we are uh, assured of our home in heaven to be with Him, and that one day we will put off this flesh. Now, Abram has already been promised land, seed, and blessing. Here in his failure, he leaves the, that land, gives over his wife, who is to carry the seed of the Messiah and promised nation and is blessed for his deception by a pagan king instead of trusting in God's hand. It is better to receive nothing from the hand of man. It is better to receive everything from the hand of God than it is anything from, from the hands of man. We have to understand this. God's hand of blessing is far greater than anything that any man can hand you over. It is better to have a little with the Lord than a whole lot with the world. It is better to simply trust God's hand. In this, God faithfully protects Abram and Sarai from their own demise of their deceptive ways. He plagues Pharaoh and uses him to correct Abram, leading to his departure from Egypt. And in this, he as well fulfills and continues to preserve his promise that he will bring a pure seed, a promised seed, through this man, ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, to save us. Now the whole scene parallels the account of Joseph, Moses, and the Exodus events which illustrate God's power in providentially bringing about the fulfillment of His promises. Ultimately, God did not take away His promises, His provision, or His presence from Abram, even though Abram sinned. And notice this as well, Abram did not lose his position. Abram did not lose the position of being favored by God, by His grace, to having received these promises by faith. Abram does not get tossed off to the side because he had one big old mistake here. He does not get told, well now Abram, I'm going to take away the land and give you some seed and blessing, but I'm going to take away the land. He doesn't uh, take away some of this. Rather, Abram remains God's man. This reminds you and I that though we fail, though we falter, Remember, Abram's not the first one of God's people to mess up, even though he was someone who was faithful and walked with God. There was a man named Noah who walked with God. And what happens when he gets off the boat? Sin is right there. 
We find this in Abram, and we find this in your life and in my life on the daily. But we are reminded in all of this that God has a greater plan, a greater purpose in our own story of redemption, and that you and I get to play a part of such of redemption's historical story. In this, we are also reminded of the beautiful parallels that one day, Joseph is going to go into Egypt. What was meant for evil, God will mean for good. And that there will be a famine in the land, if you remember later on in Genesis, and his family who had thought him dead and even left him for dead, sold him and pretended he was dead, come to him. He is able to provide for them there in Egypt. And then what happens? They go into captivity for hundreds of years, but then what happens? God had already promised to Abram, uh, Abraham there in Genesis 15 that they would be delivered out and be all the more blessed out of such and that they would go back into the land of promise. What happens here with Abram? Famine comes. Hard times come. He begins to be fearful. He leads and lives by the flesh for a moment and it leads him to Egypt where he is given provision. But then all this is to bring him back to what? The promised land. The place where we worship the Lord and know His presence and know His blessing. The place where we are able to live at the altar of God where we worship Him and know Him and walk with Him as we were designed to do. Abram here gives us once more the illustration of what the Christian life looks like. So tonight, if you're finding yourself simply struggling with the battle of sin, let me encourage you, you're not the only believer to do so. As a matter of fact, every believer does so. And you're not the only one in, in God's redemptive story that has ever struggled at times. And what you find is this, be encouraged, dear believer, if that is you tonight struggling hard with sin, that there is always a moment, an opportunity where we are able to get back to the place where it all began, back to the house of God, back to His presence, that He is always there waiting and available for us to return to Him. And that though we fall, though we sin, though we stumble, though we struggle, our position of being in Christ is as sure today as it was the moment we trusted Him and that His promises will stand in our life forever and forever. And that one day we will be delivered from Egypt and we will be delivered from our own sinful condition and our own sinful flesh. And one day we too will enter into the promised land where the curse will be removed and we will be in the unadulterated presence of God forever and forever. We will look upon the One who has saved us and sustained us throughout all of our days. Let us pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for Your Word. We're grateful for the uh, example of Abram. And though here He gives the example of failure, yet we are reminded that there is always opportunity for repentance and to get back to You. We do thank You, Lord, that even in the midst of our failures that You remain faithful to us. And Lord, we ask that tonight, if there be sin in us, Lord, that we would confess it to You that we would return back to the place of the altar of worship, that we would call upon Your name once more, that we would live a life of faith and not in the flesh. Lord, that we would put this flesh to death. And Lord, that we would long and look forward to the day where we'll be delivered from it. And Lord, that we will see You face to face. I pray that You would strengthen each one here, myself included. And God, that we would give You the glory and the honor for all things in our life. We love You and we thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, y'all have a blessed night. Lord willing, we will see you guys Sunday. Don't forget,